What would you say is the biggest insult you've ever received in life? Maybe you've blocked it out of your memory, so it's hard to think of, but that's okay. What's the worst accusation someone's made about you? Maybe someone insulted your reputation, accusing you of doing something that you would never dream of doing. Maybe someone called you names that emotionally wrecked you. Maybe someone accused you of not caring for them or not loving them. I personally know how that feels. That stings. Maybe someone insulted your name or your family or your friends, your hobbies. Maybe someone made fun of how you look or how much you weigh or your intelligence or how you talk. Bullying is just totally stupid. But that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, right? Perhaps someone even went as far to make sexist or racist comments against you or someone that you love. Maybe someone insulted your faith or accused you of violating your faith. Maybe the biggest insult you've ever received wasn't even told to your face. Maybe you heard it through the grapevine or through overhearing some slander. What should we do with such painful insults or accusations such as these? Because, as you all know, they come to everyone at some point, don't they? We all get them. Sometimes we need to humbly receive the criticism and be teachable. And maybe there's some truth in it. Sometimes we need to do our best to just ignore them and to develop thick skin and stay quiet. Some insults don't deserve the dignity of a response. Sometimes we need to defend ourselves appropriately. But I'd say in all of these cases, we always need to love our enemies and bless those who curse us as Jesus commanded us to do. But insults and accusations can come to everyone. And today we'll see that they even came to Jesus. Maybe especially to Jesus. Jesus, the most perfect man to ever walk this earth, dealt with all kinds of insults that were thrown his way during his time here. And I doubt that he received a worse insult than the one we're going to see in our passage today. Okay, So if you have your Bibles, we're going to see this together. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, and we'll be partway through the chapter in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can take one from the pew in front of you, and it's on page 869. We'll get you to Luke chapter 11. And as you turn there, just want to pray for us that as we read and study this together, that it will change our lives. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that as we read your words today, the words that you have Uh, spoken to us. We pray that our eyes would be open, our hearts would be open to receive. Please speak truth to us. Help us be comforted by these verses and encouraged by them. For you are so strong and you prove your strength and power in our lives every day. We thank you for that, Jesus, and we pray that you be glorified in this time together. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through Luke together for a while now, and we're getting later into Jesus' life. Okay, This is actually way past Christmas and moving rapidly towards Good Friday and Easter. Okay, We are going to speak more about Christmas this season, but right now we're still going through Luke. Okay, And this is going to relate a little bit. But like I said, this is getting on into the later days of Jesus' life. Much of Jesus' ministry was already out of the way, which he spent traveling and around Israel, mentoring people and loving them and teaching them and performing miracles of all kinds. Today's passage begins with yet another miracle that Jesus performed out of his compassion. Okay? We aren't given much context here, and, and Luke actually dives right into the miracle itself. Look what it says in verse 14. It says, Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Okay? A very quick summarized account of this miracle. And we've seen a number of demons or fallen angels cast out by Jesus so far in Luke. We've seen that a lot. But we haven't yet seen a mute man healed. Okay? Someone who couldn't talk. And we see in here that when a demon takes control over someone's body, they can wield some significant power and control over that person. This demon had decided to take this man's away take away this man's ability to talk. This means just think of put yourself in this guy's shoes. This means that this guy couldn't relate to his family and his friends by simply talking with them. Something we take for granted. No one could understand what this guy was trying to tell them. He probably couldn't hold down a good job. Most jobs require at least some level of talking, right? He probably, most significantly, he lost the ability to praise God or to pray out loud. Being mute was this debilitating ailment, physically, relationally, and spiritually devastating. And we know, we've seen this before, that demons are just bent on destruction of people in both body and soul. And this demon had apparently had been having a pretty good go at this guy. And as with all the other demonic exorcisms we've seen in Luke, we can easily see that Satan and his demons do have some power. However, we also always see Jesus has more. Jesus has more power, way more, in a very real sense, infinitely more power than they have. When demons met Jesus, the Son of God, on earth, they had no choice but to flee. And the first point we see here is no different from the rest, that Jesus proved his power over Satan with many miraculous signs. Jesus proved with what should have been without a shadow of doubt His unlimited power over Satan. Let's review for a minute. We're already seen in Luke, okay? Beginning of Jesus' ministry. One of the very first things he did. Went out into the desert. Was tempted by the devil himself. And we saw Jesus rebuff all these temptations. And they were powerful temptations. But Jesus stood against them. Later in Luke 4, back where this happened, Jesus met a disruptive, loud, 
demon-possessed man in the synagogue while he was trying to teach. And this guy cried out, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon was right on all accounts. Jesus was God's Holy One, the Messiah. And Jesus had come to destroy them. In the very next verse, Jesus shuts him out and casts him out. Luke then tells us that demons came out of many people, crying, You are the Son of God! In another very dramatic account in Luke 8, we saw a man possessed by many demons. That, so many demons that he had taken the name Legion. And these demons had tormented this guy for many years, and he became increasingly violent, and he actually terrified a nearby town to the point where they just wouldn't go anywhere near him. But at the feet of Jesus, that army of demons became a sniveling, begging mess. They pled, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And later, please don't send us into the abyss. But Jesus cast out every last one of them. He sent them into a herd of suicidal pigs. Jesus also, we see, had the authority to delegate his great power to other people like his disciples. Although the disciples didn't always handle that ability well or correctly. One time Jesus had to step in when they failed to cast a demon out of a boy. And once again, Jesus says a word and the demon was forced to evacuate. Fast. So here in Luke 11, when we see this, this is not an isolated incident. This was a regular occurrence for Jesus. Now, don't underestimate how active Satan and his demons are in our world today. Don't do it. But I do believe that they were likely more active in Jesus' day. Because they knew that their kingdom was under siege. And so we see it time and time again. They were fighting back against God and his kingdom and his people. They knew they were in trouble. It was desperation. And we shouldn't lose our wonder, even when we read just this one verse, at the power that Jesus displayed here. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. In one dramatic moment, Jesus told this demon to get lost, and he did. He also instantly healed the freed man of any damage the demon had caused. <laughs> as well as any possible underlying issues he had, it was instant transformation. He healed the man's tongue and teeth and throat and vocal cords. Whatever needed healing, Jesus did instantly. And Jesus proved, as God, that he had the power to restore people in body, mind, and soul. Do you believe that he still has that power today? He does. Now this is where this story starts differing from the other accounts we've seen. Luke spends only the one verse on the miracle itself, 
And then he spends 12 verses on the response to it. And that gives us a hint of what's most significant here from Luke's perspective, what he most wants to emphasize. So let's look at the response, okay? It seems, we already saw people were marveling at this great miracle that Jesus performed. And it seems that everyone was marveling, but not all of it was positive, okay? Obviously, we would think that Jesus and his, his disciples and this healed man would have been praising God's power, thanking Jesus for healing him, right? But we also see two other clear responses from people around who were probably confused by what happened. There we see some antagonism from some, and we see skepticism from others. Let's look how this plays out. So when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Verse 15, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Okay? Two groups of people. First group was outright opposed to Jesus. Antagonistic towards him. We know from elsewhere that this was mostly the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that were saying this. These guys denied that Jesus was from God at all. But he was obviously still powerful, so they had to come up with some alternate explanation for Jesus' power. And their top theory was that Jesus was just a man using satanic power. It says that some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Okay. Now, Beelzebub, you might recognize that name as well, was the name of one of the pagan Canaanite gods in the Old Testament. It originally meant Lord of the Princes, but over time, it had been made into a pun. People wanted to mock this God. They wanted to mock Satan. And so it became a pun to say Beelzebul, which means Lord of the Flies. Yes, that's where that name comes from. <laughs> Jesus used the name as a term, or the Jews here, used the name as a term of derision to refer to the devil, or Satan. Come to refer to Satan. So here in Luke 11, the Jews were accusing Jesus of using the devil's power for his miracles. It's like, no wonder he can do this. Of course he could have that. Of course Satan would have power over his own minions. This was nothing if not blatant, and disgusting, and crazy, and vile blasphemy. This is the insult I spoke of earlier. You can't really get any worse than this accusation. Not, Jesus had already been accused of being a sinner, okay? and he'd already been accused of being a friend of sinners. But what they were saying here, this is worse, they were saying that Jesus was pure evil. Other accounts of the same story tell us that some of them were claiming Jesus was possessed himself. And the, those passages also tie this accusation into what's been called the unforgivable sin. This was serious business. We're going to see Jesus' response to this outlandish insult in a moment. 
But in verse 16, we see a second group of people with a wrong response. It says, while other people, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So while some opposed Jesus, others didn't believe Jesus was the real deal. At least not yet. They wanted to hear to see more. They were skeptical. Well, he might be of God, but we've got to be sure. So let's test him. We'll see if he really is. At first glance, that might not seem so bad. But there was a huge problem with this. Think just a couple verses ago. As we just saw, Jesus had already proven his power over and over and over again. They shouldn't have needed to put him to the test. There should have been no doubt. He had just performed a miraculous exorcism and healing right in front of their eyes. But they wanted more. Lunacy. In truth, I doubt they would have ever been satisfied. This would have been like us going up to someone today, maybe Wayne Gretzky, saying, hey, can you please prove to us that you're a good hockey player? Or maybe Celine Dion. Hey, Celine, can you sing a song for us? I just want to test to see if you can actually sing. It's crazy. He'd already done it. Skepticism, though, today remains a very common attitude when it comes to Jesus. People don't feel like they're opposed to Jesus, but they're skeptical of him. Maybe of his existence, maybe of his significance, or his power, or his deity, or maybe a specific miracle like his resurrection. Skepticism is maybe less blatantly evil than antagonism. But it's just as dangerous. Because it keeps us walking, it keeps us from making a commitment to Jesus in our lives, which keeps us on the road to hell. You might be skeptical about Jesus today. You need to realize that Jesus has already provided more than enough evidence. We can talk more about that if you like, if you don't know what it is, but the proof is there. You don't need to be convinced. You need to make a decision. I'm not going to go into further depth on this today because Jesus is actually going to respond to this opposition in next week's passage. He's going to come back to it. So this week, he focuses on the antagonist. And he responds to the insult against him. And we see this in verse 17. It says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, <laughs> he knew exactly what they were thinking, probably shocked the socks off them when he responded to what they were thinking. Okay? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But... If it is by the finger of God 
that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You hear what Jesus is saying in these verses? We're going to get into some detail on them, but what Jesus was doing was he was pointing out the illogical and inconsistent details of this accusation. And by doing so, he was making an extremely clear case about who he was and what his power was. And I put it this way, that Jesus' kingdom stands diametrically opposed to Satan's kingdom. Big word just means directly or completely against. Jesus' kingdom stands diametrically opposed to Satan's kingdom. Verse 17, it's become a well-known proverb. Right? Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. Jesus is using a political and a military picture here to point out the Pharisees' bad logic. They weren't being logical. Here in Canada, we are blessed, very blessed, to not have suffered through any civil wars in our history. Okay? That is a blessing from God. Don't take that for granted. Because that, you probably know civil wars between countrymen are brutal. Okay? My home country of the U.S. wasn't so lucky. And I don't need to tell you all this because you all know American history better than you know Canadian history anyway, right? <laughs> but anyway, in the 1860s, about 150 years ago, Open war broke out between the northern and the southern states over slavery and states' rights and other issues. And over 600,000 men were killed in the Civil War. Can't wrap our minds around that number. 600,000 men were killed. An additional 400,000 were brutally injured. Look up Civil Wars on Wikipedia and you'll be shocked by the numbers of devastation. Okay? That's not even near the worst civil wars in history. Okay? Millions upon millions have perished in wars against their own countrymen. And the principle Jesus says here has been proven by history time and time again. A kingdom that is divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. Kingdoms that are divided against itself cannot stand for long. They will either desolate themselves into oblivion, or they must come to some kind of peace. And even then, their countries are still laid waste by the destruction of war. Or another nation maybe will come in and easily conquer the divided and weakened nation. Here, what Jesus was saying was that if he was really on Satan's side of things, okay? Then the religious leaders were saying that Satan's kingdom must be in a civil war, fighting against each other. Because why in the world would Satan fight against himself? That's what he says. Verse 18, And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Satan would not cast out his own demons. He sent them to do it. Right? Why would Satan work to undo what his demons had been working so hard to do? 
So Jesus was actually saying that Satan's kingdom wasn't fighting against each other. They weren't in this position of, of being a kingdom that's divided against itself. However, that does not mean that they were invincible. Okay? It just means Satan is smart. Satan's not stupid. Satan, the devil fights God and his people. Satan doesn't fight Satan. Okay? But not only were the teachers of the law being illogical, they were also being inconsistent. Did you see that? Verse 19 says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Here, Jesus was pointing out hypocrisy. Apparently, there were some Jewish teachers in that day that were doing similar things. They were practicing exorcisms, apparently in a similar manner to the way that Jesus was doing them. And when they cast out demons, it was assumed that that was validation from God of their ministry or their teaching. And it was proof that God was working through them. That's the way everyone saw it. And the Pharisees likely knew and even supported some of these people who were doing this. So Jesus was asking, hey, are they in the right? Because if they are, how am I not? Or if I am evil and I'm of the devil, then they must be too. Totally inconsistent. If your own... By whom do your own sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. It's like, I'll let them judge you. It's like he's saying, try making that accusation when they're here. See what they say. That casting out demons makes you demonic yourself. Right? They'd rake you over the coals. Totally hypocrisy. What these verses, I think, though, overall, when we look at them as a whole, these verses just show us that Jesus is unquestionably not part of Satan's kingdom. He's absolutely not evil. To claim he's evil is beyond preposterous. The truth is, Jesus is the complete opposite. He's diametrically opposed to evil. He's in an ongoing war against evil, which started with Satan's rebellion at the beginning. Contrary what many people might tell you today. There is real good and real evil in our universe. There is one true God and there is a devil. There are angels and there are demons. There are righteous and there are unrighteous. There is right living and there is sin. Not everything is good or of God or acceptable. There are more than 50 shades of evil in our world. Our culture has tenaciously tried to blur those lines. Part of us knows that already, though. And we inherently know that there's good and evil. We know it. it's true from our consciences and Besides, we love stories of good triumphing over evil, don't we? We love them. Superheroes versus supervillains. Lord of the Rings, Narnia, Star Wars, every fairy tale out there. 
There is something supremely satisfying about seeing good triumph over evil. We love it. We adore heroes who do, and we yearn to see more of it in our world. But the best story ever of good triumphing over evil is in the Bible. And it's not just a story. It's real life. Jesus is going to tell us about this in the next couple verses. Here's the great news of today. That Jesus' kingdom has eternally overcome Satan's kingdom. Through Jesus, Satan is defeated, overthrown, conquered, and entirely and eternally overcome. Amen? Start again in verse 20. It says this, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here he's finishing the contrast he started earlier. So if I'm evil and I'm using Satan's power, then it means that your friends are evil too. But if I'm good, if I'm using God's power, then it means a whole lot more than that. It means that the long-awaited kingdom of God is here now. The leaders thought Jesus was either good or evil. They were right on the options. Dead wrong on their conclusion. The fact that Jesus was here on earth using what he says, the finger of God, to work miracles, should have been a strong testament to the truth of his teaching and his claim. He was going around claiming that the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is here. I'm bringing the kingdom of God. And as he displayed this power, it should have been a strong testament to that kingdom of God. That the rule and the reign of God had returned to earth to rule over people's hearts. God was moving again on earth. He was working on redemption again. His Messiah was here. God's kingdom was coming. And consequently... Satan's kingdom was collapsing. Jesus makes this point by telling a little parable. In verses 21 and 22, he says this. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Now, this might be kind of confusing at first, but let me explain it. I think you'll get the picture really quickly. Jesus wants us to imagine a strong man. So picture a prince or a king in his palace, sitting snugly and securely, maybe in a castle, okay? Not feeling threatened at all by any nations around him or any other rulers. Feels totally safe. He got lots of riches and possessions and subjects. He feels safe because he's got strong defenses and walls and armies and armor protecting him. Okay? That's verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Now, what does that mean? Well, Satan's the strong man. Okay? And he felt nice and secure in his kingdom on earth kingdom he had built. And what are the goods he's protecting here? Probably none other than people's souls. He had free reign over the people of earth and imprisons 
our hearts. Verse 22. But when one's stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So this is a picture of this prince's kingdom being destroyed and laid waste. So there's a strong man and there's a stronger man. And this stronger man does what? He attacks him. He overcomes him. He takes his armor away, so he destroys his defenses. And he collects the spoils of war. Picture starting to make sense now? Okay? Satan felt secure in his strength, unassailable, impenetrable, until Jesus came. And as he said this, Jesus had, had Satan's kingdom under siege. He would go on to defeat and conquer and overcome Satan's kingdom. He destroyed Satan's stronghold and his defenses. And best of all for us, Jesus collected the spoils. Jesus looted Satan's goods. Remember, what are Satan's goods? He's protecting and feeling safe about us, our souls. So... Jesus stormed Satan's castle and carried us off. What a great picture. As soon as Christ came, even as soon as Christmas morning, Satan's kingdom was doomed. It wasn't yet overcome, but it soon would be. Here's a mistake we often make in our thinking. We think, is so wrong. We think Jesus and Satan are equal in some way. They're not. Okay? Jesus and Satan aren't two equals. It's not like they're a superhero and a supervillain or with equal or close to equal powers. It's not Superman versus Lex Luthor. It's not Spider-Man versus the Green Goblin. It's not Batman versus the Joker. Okay? This is the omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign creator God versus a created, fallen, limited angel whose ego got the, went to his head and who is not in control. This is war. But it's not really a contest. One little word shall fell Satan forever. He may not be entirely vanquished yet, but he might as well be. What good news for us, right? The Bible tells us that on our own, we are under Satan's power. That he has blinded us. That he keeps us on evil paths. He tempts us like treasure he hoards in a castle. But while he is stronger than us. Praise God that there is one far stronger than he. Jesus stormed Satan's castle and fought and won the war when he came to earth. 1 John 3.8 tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason he came at Christmas. And the war was especially won when later Jesus died on the cross and rose again. Hebrews 2.14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so he became like us, 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Have you been delivered from the power of Satan yet? You may not even know you're still in his castle. Following his ways. In slavery to sin. But the deliverer has come. The deliverer can deliver you today. If only you'll let him. Satan has power but you can be free forever from him. Turn from your sins today. Turn to Christ. Turn from the evil in your heart. Turn to the good that is in him. And you'll be saved from your sins. From the devil and from hell. No longer will you be a blind slave, as it says in these passages, but you'll be a beloved son love to help you do that today, to accept the rescue that Jesus has done for you. Please come see me in a few minutes when we're done. The most important thing you could ever do is, is taking Jesus at his word and accepting his rescue. We can't rescue ourselves. If you've never done this before, this is what this passage would call you to do today. Take this step. But Jesus moves on as we go on to a major application that applies to everyone. No matter who you are, it applies to all of us here. There is a war going on. Battle lines have been drawn. Everyone is fighting for someone. There's no middle ground. And we must make a decision on which side we're on. This goes for us even if we think we've followed Jesus for years. Because we still make countless decisions every day to fight for someone in this battle. Here's what we learn in the final verses of this passage. That Jesus' kingdom calls for our undivided loyalty. Jesus and his kingdom call for our undivided loyalty in our hearts and our actions. Jesus now shows that the battle includes more than just invisible spiritual forces around us. It involves us. He really, he turns the tables on the Pharisees who thought Jesus was being evil when in fact anyone that was against Jesus was the ones that were being evil. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, whoever is not with me, like a commander calling his soldiers to join him, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We saw Jesus say something very similar back in chapter 9 when Jesus said, the one who is not against you is for you. You might think that sounds like Jesus saying the opposite things, but he's not. He was speaking to very different situations and contexts, and, and both were essentially saying the same thing, that there's no neutrality with Jesus. Okay? No neutrality with Jesus. No middle ground. No safe zone. That you can just wander in indefinitely. Many people today admire Jesus from a distance. Think he was a great man or a great teacher. Or they'll come and worship him on Sundays. But they don't want to get too close. 
as he demands too much of them. We don't want him to make demands on our obedience or our time or our money or for him to insist that we repent of all our sins. We want to keep some of them. We don't want it to have to love our enemies or to love the unlovely around us. We don't want to have to forgive others completely or to, to speak up boldly and evangelistically for him. We'd prefer to stay semi-committed, semi-devoted, semi-disciple. We don't want to be completely devoted wholly surrendered, 100% sold out for God's kingdom. That's exactly where the devil wants us to be. If you're there, you're on the wrong side. Verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Anyone not entirely with Christ is actually against him. Either we join in his kingdom's fight against the devil and begin gathering souls for God by collecting a harvest, is the picture here. Or we're against him scattering souls, including our own. Preventing ourselves or preventing others we love from being rescued by Jesus. Daryl Bach says, The one who is not joined to Jesus is against him. The one who does not share with him in gathering people for the kingdom is working against him by preventing their entry. There is no fence to sit on. So I ask you today, which side are you on? If you're on Jesus' side, are you undividedly loyal to they're, just think in the wartime pictures again, treason or even simple wishy-washiness is not tolerated in times of war. We cannot have divided loyalties in Jesus' kingdom. We cannot be loyal to Jesus and yet obsessed with our money or our riches. We cannot be loyal to Jesus and addicted to our sinful habits. We cannot be loyal to Jesus and despise others around us, harboring bitterness against them. We cannot be loyal to Jesus and yet be consumed by the idols we have of food or entertainment or luxury or security. We cannot be loyal to Jesus and tolerate the presence of evil in our lives. The message puts verse 23 this way. It says, this is war and there is no neutral ground. If you're not on my side, you're the enemy. If you're not helping, you're making things worse. And what happens when we try to rescue ourselves? We don't want to completely join Jesus' side. What happens? Things only get worse. Much worse than Christ. Verse 24 to 26, the next little section there, describes a situation where a man thought he was rescued from evil. 
But while evil had vacated the premises, the man had not been entirely transformed. He hadn't invited God's spirit to come and dwell his life. And it says this in verse 24. It kind of goes full circle back to his picture of casting out a demon. It says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Okay. Now these are some pretty mysterious verses that we don't fully understand. No one completely understands what Jesus is saying here. What it, it pulls back the curtain a little bit on what the invisible spiritual world is like, on the realities of the spiritual world. We don't know a lot of details about the spiritual world or about spiritual warfare, and so this shows us some of them. But they're not the point anyway. Okay, We could get all into trying to figure out what this means spiritual warfare-wise, but they're not what Jesus is trying to say. Okay, I think Jesus added this, it's rather depressing little story here at the end of this passage, simply to show what happens when you don't completely join Jesus' side. When you try to fight evil on your own, and your heart doesn't fully change, you may end up better in the short term. You may be able to sweep the floor. But in the long term, you end up far worse. That's the point. D.A. Carson says, This story's point is not to satisfy curiosity about demons, but to warn against the danger of repentance that is purely negative. A relapse can lead to dreadful danger. What is needed is what Thomas Chalmers says, the expulsive power of a new affection. Okay? Just like in the physical world, in politics, in, in military, power vacuums are dangerous. J.C. Ryle adds, the house must not only be swept, a new tenant must be introduced. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Spirit must take his place. To close, we must once again return to praise. Because for though evil is strong around us, Jesus is far stronger. For though we cannot rescue ourselves, Jesus has already run the rescue operation for us. For though evil can wreak destruction in our lives, Jesus can restore us from anything. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, Jesus can restore you completely. Colossians 1.13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins. You know, some Christmas carols really communicate this message well. Because the siege of Satan's castle began at Christmas when Christ came down. So today, as we sing last night at our Christmas banquet, God rests ye merry gentlemen and women, let nothing you dismay, 
Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to do what? To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. Tidings of comfort and joy. And as we pray, let's pray this. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Or as we say, O come, thou rod of Jesse, and the line of King David. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give us victory over the grave. In Jesus our Emmanuel's name.